Christ is risen. Well, if you didn't know, it's Easter. Every Easter, followers of Christ around the world, over all the centuries, we have gathered to celebrate the resurrection. We gather to remember, and we gather to proclaim, and we gather to ponder, to reflect upon the fact Dear friends, the fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, willingly died a humiliating and painful death upon a Roman cross, not because he was guilty of anything, but in payment for our sin. And then, just as he had told his disciples he would do, On the third day, he rose. He came back to life. Now understand this. Understand that what we're saying here is not that Jesus Christ survived crucifixion. No, he did not. He died. The historical record is is oh so very clear. Logic demands it. The evidence is conclusive. Jesus of Nazareth died that Friday. But then, but then three days later on Sunday morning, he rose victorious over sin and death. He was not a mere survivor, but he became the victor. He rose in power and he rose having accomplished our salvation. That, my friends, that is why we celebrate. That is why at Easter we gather to celebrate the resurrection. What we celebrate this morning is the linchpin of the Christian faith. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ had not been raised, if the resurrection is not reality, if it isn't fact, then Paul says your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Dear friends, nothing matters. Nothing matters more than the reality of that which we celebrate this morning, the resurrection. To get a better picture of of what this is all about, I want us to look back to all that led up to that momentous Sunday morning. I want us to try to understand not only what happened, but what it is that it has to do with us. You know, if you go back in history, go back as far or go back as little as you'd like, Here's what you're going to find if you look back in history. As long as there have been people, there has been sin. Humanity seems to be uniquely gifted with the proclivity to do that which we know we shouldn't do. That's true, isn't it? That's true. We see it in history. We see that in the mirror each morning, don't we? And if you're a parent, then you know that we're born this way right? You didn't teach your kids to do that. They were made that way. They, they were born as little sinners. And, and let's, be, let's be really honest, though. <laughs> let's be really honest. It's not that you didn't know that before you had kids. 
You knew that every time you looked in the mirror. But man, it's easier and it's more comfortable to come to terms with that truth when we see it in our kids than it is when we see it in ourselves. So from the very beginning, from the very beginning of, of creation, mankind as a whole and each of us as individuals, we have done those things that we knew were wrong. Too often, we find ourselves choosing and acting not only wrongly, but to the harm of those around us, even to our own destruction. See, here's, here's reality, sin destroys. Sin destroys, it taints, it wounds, and eventually it kills. And so, from the very beginning, God has offered us a way out of sin. From the very beginning, God promised to, to send a redeemer, a savior, to rescue us, and he did. As the Gospel of John describes it in that most famous of all Bible verses, for God so loved the world, right? Recognize this, remember this, that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. Jesus came to rescue us from slavery to and from the consequences of our sin. As Romans chapter five there in verse six puts it, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He died to rescue us. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. Because as Romans 3.23 tells us, the wages of sin is death. What you get for sin is death. Our sin has earned us the death penalty, but Christ, who is innocent, has willingly paid the penalty in our place. He died in our place. He conquered sin and death when he rose on the third day. That's the big picture. That's the big picture. Now, let's look very briefly at one of the four eyewitness accounts of these things that we find recorded in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up to the New Testament, to the book of Luke, to the book of Luke. There, Dr. Luke records for us and not things that he saw. Luke was not an eyewitness. Rather, he was an investigator. He was a researcher who carefully looked into these things, interviewed those who were eyewitnesses, and recorded their story for us. Luke's account is one that has been proven time and time again to be historically accurate. It describes the places, the politics, the culture, the events with absolute accuracy and with candid honesty. And where we pick up this morning is going to be at the, the tail end of Luke's account. Uh, Luke begins, of course, with the birth of Jesus and then he spends many chapters telling us, uh, documenting for us the, the ministry of Jesus. But where we will be this morning is at the end of what he writes. He has already described Jesus' false arrest, the mockery of a trial that convicted him, and the abuse that he suffered under the Roman soldiers. And we will pick up here in chapter 23 
with the execution of Jesus by crucifixion. I'm going to invite you to do this. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 23, and we're going to pick up in verse 32. And will you do this? Will you stand with me? You know, we do that. When we read God's Word, we, we stand for the reading of God's Word out of respect for it, because this isn't our Word. This isn't our thing, but it is what God has spoken. Here's what Luke has recorded. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Uh, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. 
On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Father, I pray that this morning as we gather to remember your words and not just your words, Lord, but what you did. And that you would meet us here in this time, you would speak to our hearts. God, that we might not only know the information, the fact that you are risen, but we might experience it each individually. Work in this time, speak to our hearts, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. What we've just read here is Luke's historical account of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And obviously, though Jesus' death was unjust and undeserved and horrific, yet it is his resurrection, his coming back to life that is most notable. What is claimed here is that though he was dead, now he lives. Now, a claim like that, a claim like that, unless it is true, it's very easy to refute. And a claim like that, unless it is true, it would be very difficult to convince people to believe it. And yet history tells us this, that the opponents of Christianity, and there were many, and they were immediate, they could not refute the resurrection. And the followers of Jesus grew in great numbers, despite severe persecution. Why is that? Well, it's because the very well-guarded tomb contained no body. And it was because person after person encountered the risen Lord again and again. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, there in chapter 15, as he talks about the importance of the resurrection, he invites skeptics to look into it. He says this, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So hey, Paul says, listen, don't believe me? Okay. Let me give you a list of over 500 people you can go and talk to who encountered the risen Lord. He appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me. 
Paul says, listen, many of us, many of us have encountered the risen Lord and our lives have been radically and inexplicably transformed by that encounter. You know, the historical reliability of the gospel accounts is, is very well documented. If, if you want to look into further evidence for these things, I, I would recommend J. Warner Wallace's very readable Cold Case Christianity. It's a quick read. It's a great book. It's a, it's a um, very clear argument for the factual reality of the resurrection. You're a little bit more intellectual. Uh, maybe I would uh, encourage you to take a look at the more stringent biblical, scientific, and philosophical evidence that, that's laid out in Frank Turek's I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Had two great works. This morning, though, I want to focus not so much on the evidence for the rection. That has been very well established. Instead, I want us very briefly to consider the personal impact of these things. How does what we just read there, what, how does what Luke recorded for us here, how does that impact our lives? Where do we fit into all of this? Where do we fit into this picture? Why do these things matter to us? You know, there are very many different characters who each play a part in the scene that Luke records. And I think it's interesting because I think each one of them speak to us. If you remember from what we read, first of all, there were the Roman soldiers, the very ones who crucified Jesus. It had been Roman soldiers previously who had beaten, who had mocked, who had flogged Jesus, it was Roman soldiers who had led him out of the city. And as Luke very simply records, they crucified him. Meaning this, they took his beaten body and they stretched it out upon the cross. And they nailed him to it. And then they set him upright and they waited for him to die. You know, the brutality uh, the physical horror of, of crucifixion, it, it's something that is very well documented. But I think that these soldiers, if you had the chance to speak with them, I think they would have told you that they were rather used to this sort of savagery. You see, crucifixion was unthinkably common in that day. Their cruelty, their barbarism was... So, something that to us is almost unthinkable, and yet for them, it was just another day at the office. I think they likely would have told us that they were just doing their job. They would have said that they were just doing what they were ordered to do. That, yes, the system was brutal. Uh, possibly even evil, but they were just pawns. It wasn't their fault, they would have said. They were just caught up in a powerful and sometimes evil machine. And yet there they were, splattered with the Savior's blood. They had struck him. They had mocked him. They had flogged him. And then they crucified him. His blood declared their guilt. 
You know, dear friends, we are just like them when we justify our sin, aren't we? When we say that it's the circumstances, it's not my fault, I'm just doing what I had to do. We are just as guilty as they are. Now, at least by appearance, the polar opposite of the soldiers would have been the Jewish religious leaders. Their robes, as they stood there at the foot of the cross, would have been spotless, as would have their behavior been as well. You see, these were people who specialized in keeping rules, in doing things right, in looking innocent. But it had been their barbarous hearts that had turned Jesus over to the Romans. And it had been their, their murderous lust for power that had condemned him. And it was the violence of their words that had pushed for Jesus' crucifixion. Now, they would have told you that they were upright, that they were good, that they, and they would have pointed to their morality and to their decency as proof of these things. But their secret words recorded for us here betray the reality of their hearts. Hearts that were tainted by hate, by jealousy, by pride. And at times, dear friends, can't we be just like them? Oh, we keep that smile glued to our face, don't we? But in our hearts, we allow ourselves to utterly despise that person we're grinning at. Oh, and we bite our tongue, we keep our mouth shut, but in our heads we say all sorts of vicious things in that moment. We want to think that we're good, that we're just basically good, that we have good character and motives, and yet if we are honest, we have to admit that we too have allowed hatred and jealousy and pride into our hearts. Jesus' followers were there too. They stood and watched all that took place. They were horrified. They were terrified. They were paralyzed by, by all that was taking place. And they were helpless. They could not change what was happening. They were powerless. They couldn't even really understand what was taking place. So too, often don't we feel paralyzed in the midst of the things that go on in life? Don't we feel helpless to change the, the evil that we see? Then there was the crowd, the mass of humanity, most of whom probably didn't even really know how they got there that day. They'd come there with someone else or they'd been swept along by the mob. They weren't there on purpose, nor did they consider themselves a part of the scene. But they were. They were there. They joined in. The last two characters that I want us to look at, I think, sum up the whole. 
They, they summarize the soldiers and the religious leaders and Jesus' followers and the crowd. This disparate group that you look at and you think they're all so different and yet they're all the same because they're all just like those two criminals that were crucified there with Jesus. Here's what I mean. Just like the two criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus. Every person there, every person who stood outside the city that day was guilty of sin. Just like we are. Romans 3.23, remember what it says, that all have sinned. We are all guilty of sin. And just like those two criminals who found themselves nailed to the cross, the rest of the people there were just as helpless as they were, just as incapable of saving themselves as were these two criminals. What could any of them do? The criminals, the soldiers, the religious leaders, Jesus' followers, the crowd of people, what could they do to fix their problem with sin, their guilt? Oh, like the first criminal, they could choose, if they wanted to, to deny their guilt, to argue their case as they hung their dying. They could curse the system. They could curse God as their life ebbed away. We can choose that route. We can blame God. We can say it's his fault. But we can't save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves from the problem of sin. There's another option. There's another option. It's laid out for us there in chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. Look at those again. It, it, it recounts for us that other criminal, that other man who was nailed to his cross, just as guilty, just as helpless, but who chose a different path. Instead of cursing the system or cursing God or arguing his innocence. He called out to the Savior. He confessed his sin. And he asked God in human flesh to forgive him. Dear friends, that option is open to us as well today. We can ask for the great exchange that that criminal received. We can ask for Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin and for us to receive the reward that he deserves for all his goodness. That is the only way that any of us will ever see the inside of heaven is if we receive this great exchange that's the only way that we will ever experience peace with God. That's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14. There in verse six, he said this. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. 
I am the life. No one comes to the Father, Jesus said, except through me. There is only one way. But know this, that way is open to all. It's open to you. Today we, we face the reality just like those criminals faced it. Oh, we're not nailed to a literal cross, but we are guilty, are we not? Just as they were guilty. And we are helpless, are we not? Just as they were. We can't solve our problem of sin. And we have the choice today to either blame God, to blame the system, to argue our relative innocence, or to confess our sin and to plead for his mercy. And dear friends, that is the only path to heaven. It's not by being good enough. It's not by measuring up. It's not by proving yourself, but it is by throwing yourself upon the mercy of Jesus. It's asking for the great exchange, that he would take the penalty for your sin, that you might receive the reward for his righteousness. And if you receive that, if you receive that today, you can begin to live the rest of this life now for Christ. You can begin to experience freedom from sin and from guilt. Some of you can't remember. You can't remember what it's like not to be guilty, not to, to have a burden of the sin that you've, you've done. Christ offers to take that from you today. To free you from that burden. And to give you new life. To give you new life. That you might begin to live this life as an act of worship. That the response of your heart could be worship of the one who saved you, who redeemed you, and who will one day call you to come to be with him for all eternity. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Confess your sin. Confess your helplessness. And receive the great exchange. Receive the gift of forgiveness that Christ purchased for you upon the cross. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the simplicity of the gospel message. God, I thank you that there is, there is no secret ceremony, there is no secret handshake, there is, there is nothing that, that we have to do to earn or to deserve your love for us. but you offer it. You offer forgiveness. 
And all we need to do is receive it. To receive you, to be transformed by you. And to begin to experience life that is new. To know forgiveness. Freedom from guilt and shame. to be able to begin to experience the exhilaration of new life. Life that has eternal purpose and meaning. God, I pray that this morning that any of us who have not yet made that transaction, have not yet surrendered our lives to Christ, have not received his forgiveness, that this morning would be our time, our moment. God, as we, we come now to a time of worship, I pray that each of us would do business with you. That there would be those who would receive your forgiveness. That there would be those who, who, who know you and have, have your forgiveness. But Lord, we, we have not, we haven't been thinking straight about that. And we've been walking in condemnation that we would be reminded again this morning that we are forgiven. That your death in our place was enough. And that we would begin to walk in victory. God, I pray that you would accomplish the thing that you desire to do within our lives here this morning and that you would be glorified. We pray it all in Jesus' name.